0: Michael had a way of attracting all kinds of characters, often usually with money, always I thought with another agenda, their own agenda, and mesmerized by the celebrity of Michael Jackson. And being in that orbit was something that would justify their spending great sums of money oftentimes to help support michael's lifestyle
1: this is former jackson attorney and confidant carl douglas from our interview
0: michael would probably not want me to say that he exploited his celebrity in those ways um michael always thought he was on the victory tour 1984 And regrettably, until toward the end, was unwilling to acknowledge that he had to make adjustments in his professional life in view of the lowering of his profile and his income. His celebrity arc was so bright. People would be camped outside the gates, fawning over him. Michael was a prisoner of his celebrity, I think. And once you got away from enjoying the limelight, the brightness of the light, it is a very uh, limiting lifestyle. I think the sycophants were around. Um, It's hard to say how any one of us would react if we have a chance to be brought into that universe. No one wanted to slay the goose who laid the golden eggs.
1: From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 7, The Goose with the Golden Eggs. Omar. I'm making sure you're
2: alive. Man, what time is it?
1: It's like 8 a.m., which is very early for me. But Jenna's old dog kept waking me to let her out to go pee. It's a nightmare.
2: Yeah, you sound a little bit hoarse, too.
1: Uh, I think I got this, this throat thing I'm trying to deal with during this episode.
2: Yeah, it's going around at work, too.
1: So, the the last episode was specific to child sex offenders. It was pretty heavy. So, I've got good news for you that this episode will mostly be fun.
2: Oh, thank God. Why Why is that? What's What's going on? Well,
1: you know how in movies there's, like, the fun and game section? Uh,
2: no. It, well, what do you mean? No. It, it, well, like, I mean,
1: fun and games. So, like, Jenna, my wife, you know, she's a nurse. She deals with serious all day so all she wants to do is relax and watch like a classic comedy or a good rom-com when she gets home right right whereas i'm like hey do you want to watch this obscure european horror movie <laughs> you
2: know? That, yeah yeah i get it what's so what's the fun and games part so then?
1: the fun and games part is like like personal favorite would be pretty woman it's like the wish fulfillment you know it's like where richard Gere takes julia roberts shopping in beverly hills and he tells his store manager He's about to spend, like, an obscene amount of money on her outfits, right? Excuse
3: me, sir? Uh, yeah. Exactly how obscene an amount of money were you talking about? Just profane or really offensive? Really offensive. I like him so much.
1: So it's basically, in a movie, when your lead character walks into Act 2, they're, like, the trailer moments. You know, that's, like, when you pay your 15 bucks. That's what you want to see, right?
2: Okay, so another... Example would be um I mean no intended connection to Michael Jackson, but Home Alone where Macaulay Culkin Kevin McAllister. Right, right, like where Kevin McAllister is like setting all the traps for the burglars. This is
4: my house. I have to defend it.
1: Right, you got it. So we're going back in the years here, basically between the Jordy Chandler case and another one, which we'll get to. If you're into celebrity meltdowns, this episode is totally for you because it's like the train wreck of all train wrecks, but it's a slow one. And there's also a few important characters here throughout, the first of which is Lisa Marie Presley.
2: Okay, right, because I kind of remember, I mean, as I remember, her marriage to Michael Jackson was was arranged or something. I, I feel like it was something like it that. It kind of felt like that. Yeah. They
1: later did this interview with Diane Sawyer that we'll get into, but in it she said, Um, that she was in touch with Jackson through the whole process of the, she called him charges going on. And that she was actually part of the whole thing with him um, talking to him on the phone during it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. She separated from her husband for four months. And it was during this time that Jackson made a phone call to her saying, What would you do if I asked you to marry me? And so according to the book Elizabeth and Michael, the Queen of Hollywood and the King of Pop, a love story by Donald Bogle, basically Presley and Jackson were dating during those four months. Whoa. Yeah. Well, People Magazine called it Neverland meets Graceland.
2: Oh, Nice. Now, some, good. yeah, that's good.
1: So, to stay on track, about a year after their marriage, Jackson and Lisa Marie appeared together in this interview special with Diane Sawyer on June 14th, 1995.
5: For three decades, the music, the dance, the king of pop, the billion dollar entertainer. And then, at the height of his success, came the charges, the police investigation. And a
3: superstar, shaken, goes into hiding. Tonight, Michael Jackson. The interview we've been waiting for, live.
1: What was originally billed as a hard-hitting piece of journalism by ABC News resulted in an exercise in PR for Jackson and a challenging case for the media at large. After much preamble, a mini-biography on Jackson, then a brief package on the Chandler scandal, The much-hyped interview of Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley came. Diane Sawyer sat opposite Jackson and his new bride. In the studio was a persistent humming sound picked up by the mics, which Maureen Orth reported in Vanity Fair was due to the running air conditioning unit that was necessary to keep Jackson's makeup from running and his false eyelashes from falling off. Off the top, Sawyer asked Oprah-like, nosy next-door neighbor questions what the public had been stewing on. How did they meet? Isn't it all kind of weird?
6: As you know, the reaction to this marriage, and I know you feel strongly about it, but the reaction to this marriage has been across the spectrum, everything from astonishment to delight to suspicion, that it was somehow too convenient.
1: After Jackson and Presley explained their marriage as genuine in their active sex life and described themselves as just normal people, Sawyer then got into the facts, or the facts with a question mark, of the Chandler case.
6: How about the police photographs, though? How was there enough information from this boy about those kinds of things the police photograph that, that they took of me. Yes. There was
7: nothing that matched me to those charges. There was nothing. nothing. There was nothing
4: that concurred. That's nothing? why I'm sitting here there talking to you today.
7: Every, there was not one iota of information that was found that could connect
6: me. So when we've heard that charges, there was, that, that was a marking. marking of some kind. No markings. No
4: markings. No.
6: Why did you so why am so I still here then? You're not going to ask me about that, are you?
4: <laughs> Sorry about the markings.
1: <laughs> there were though markings on Jackson's genitals from vitiligo that matched Jordy Chandler's description and drawings from the body search, including spots on Jackson's testicles and a particular marking on the underside of his penis. Here is former Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss, who investigated Jackson from Episode 5 of Telephone Stories, describing the comparisons.
3: Not just the genitalia, but a particular uh, mark, um, on the underside of his penis uh, which uh, the victim described. And we had uh, information that, that Michael had always maintained uh, that he never was seen naked in front of any of these children.
1: What didn't match, though, famously, was Jordy's description of Jackson being circumcised, according to law enforcement agents and Jackson's own attorneys. After much prodding from Sawyer in the primetime interview, Jackson then explained the reasons for agreeing to the settlement. He emphatically explained that if he went to trial, his lawyers said they could not guarantee that, quote, justice would prevail.
7: So what I said, I have got to do something to get out from under this nightmare. All these lies and all these people coming forward to get paid and these tabloid shows, just lies, 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 lies. So what I did, we got together again with my advisors, and they advised me, it was hands down a unanimous decision, resolve the case. This could be something that could go on for seven years.
1: Sawyer then asked Jackson to clarify the amount of the settlement.
7: Can you say how much? It's not what the tabloids have printed. It's not all this crazy outlandish money. No, it's not at
1: all. It actually was crazy outlandish money. The tabloids and respected news outlets cited sources within the Jackson camp estimating the figure to be between 15 and $25 million. And it was actually upwards of that amount in the end, according to the LA Times.
6: Any other settlements in process now or previously with children making these kinds of claims, we have heard that there is one, not not a case that the prosecutors no. would bring in court, but that once again you're talking about shelling out. No, that's not true. no, no, it's no, not true.
7: I think I've heard everything is fine and there are no others.
1: The public would later learn in Jackson's 2005 criminal trial that Jackson was actually in the process of settling another claim, one brought by former Jackson maid Blanca Franzia who had appeared on hard copy with Diane Diamond in 1993 over allegations that Jackson had fondled her son. We'll get to the Blanca Franzia story in detail later in Jackson's criminal trial. Near the end of the primetime interview, Sawyer asked Jackson if he would continue to have children sleep over at his house in his bed.
6: I just wonder, is it over? You're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. I think this is really is the what key a... thing people want to know. That that there are not going to be more of these sleepovers in which people have to wonder.
7: Nobody wonders when kids sleep over at my house. So you'll I'll you do it never, again? I ever do it, what again?
6: I mean, you'll have a child sleeping Of course. Over. They want. Yes. It's
7: on the level of purity and love and just innocence, complete innocence. If you're talking about sex, and that's a nut, that's not me. Go to the guy down the street, because it's not Michael Jackson. It's not what I'm interested in.
1: The interview, which is still available on YouTube, has many more fascinating aspects to it, including Elizabeth Taylor showing up, yet again, to espouse Jackson's innocence and love for children. There's also a whole man-on-the-street sequence where Sawyer plays footage of random people asking Jackson and Lisa Marie in the studio about their sex life. In part of the deal arranged with ABC, according to Maureen at of Vanity Fair, the special ended with a world premiere of a music video, which Sawyer described as Jackson's response to the madness of the last two years of his life. The song, Scream, was a single from his upcoming history album with a budget of $7 million. It was, at the time, the most expensive music video ever made. In it, Michael and his sister Janet bemoaned a dishonest and obsessive media. (laughs) Following the ABC News special, many in the press pointed out how the program was less a piece of journalism and more of a softball question-and-answer session that also acted like a giant advertisement for Jackson's upcoming history album. Howard Rosenberg, the LA Times television critic, wrote, As always, the media gleefully allowed themselves to be used. For the most part, of course, these are the same maniacally out-of-control media that jumped out of their skins in reporting a 13-year-old boy's unproved charges in 1993 that he was molested by Jackson. Rosenberg goes on, The same media that Jackson regards as the scum, the insects, the doodos, the bobos, the bile of the earth. Until he needs them. Now he needs them. Maureen Orth said in Vanity Fair of the supposed special, Whatever it was, 60 million Americans and untold millions around the world got something less than the truth.
2: So I would imagine, too, that um, Evan Chandler must have been watching this and he must have been just terribly upset about it.
1: Yeah, he was pretty pissed. He was so mad that he sued Jackson for breaking the nondisclosure of their settlement agreement, since Jackson was talking about it on ABC. And Evan also listed ABC News, Diane Sawyer, and Sony Music in the lawsuit.
2: Wow. Did he end up winning? Or
1: In a word, no. Not at all. In fact, according to his brother Raymond Chandler's account and his book, All That Glitters, Evan kind of lost it here. He busted his ass on this case, and he lost his health along the way because he wasn't taking care of himself. Hmm. And following the settlement, there were a bunch of lawsuits that came Evan's way.
2: Yeah, you know, I remember pulling a bunch of stuff um, out of the basement at the at the you know downtown at the courthouse. Yeah. And I honestly, I couldn't believe how many there were. I was, I didn't know where to start or what to look for really. Like from malpractice suits um, at his dental office to this one suit that. Um, Evan filed against um, Jordy's stepdad, David Schwartz, and...
1: Renorak Schwartz.
2: Right, and June Chandler Schwartz. It was just like one after the other.
1: Yeah, and also we should add, too, that Evan divorced his second wife then, and June Chandler divorced David Schwartz um, shortly afterwards. Right. Yeah, Raymond Chandler wrote that his brother Evan ended up pretty much friendless and penniless after all this.
2: Wow. So what happened to Jackson after uh, the Diane Sawyer thing?
1: Right, so Jackson was hitting the promotions pretty hard. He had this agreement with HBO to do a live concert. Michael Jackson, one night only. But in December 1995, he collapsed on stage while doing a rehearsal for it. His doctors said that Jackson was suffering from a viral infection. Lisa Marie flew to his side at the hospital where he was in intensive care. Years later, after Jackson's death, Lisa Marie Presley recalled the event in an interview with Oprah.
4: Everybody flew to the hospital, and um, it was very confusing what was wrong because every day there was a different report, and I couldn't tell what was happening—dehydration, low blood pressure, um, exhaustion, a virus. So I couldn't really get a straight answer as to what was happening with him, and I think we were all a little bit in the dark.
1: Following his recovery, Jackson's energies went full force into promoting his history album. In the $4 million theatrical promo, Jackson seemed to announce, bombastically, that he was focusing his efforts on a European market. In the promo footage, a crowd, and I'm talking about a giant-ass crowd, rushes to view a very Stalin-esque military march in Budapest, led by a jackbooted Michael Jackson, who is clad in a heavy, gilt adorned military-style uniform and seems to be celebrated as their new world leader. Later in the video, there's another high-octane scene of what looks like a country full of people clamoring to witness the unveiling of a skyscraper-sized stone statue of Jackson. Little girls faint from their excitement. A young boy screams Jackson's name. It's all very reminiscent of Lenny Riefenstahl's style, if you know who that is. As for the songs on History, they were a mixed bag. Some sought to reiterate Jackson's innocence, such as the track about his childhood called "Childhood," which was later used for the 1995 whale movie sequel *Free Willy 2: The Adventure Home*. You seen my childhood? I'm searching for
7: that wonder in my
1: youth. Another track called "D.S." seemed to many as a not-so-cloaked reference to Tom Sneddon, The Santa Barbara district attorney who doggedly pursued Jackson for years. In fact, the chorus is amazingly obvious, saying, Dom Sheldon is a cold man. eh? eh? Of all the doozers, a particular song that drew controversy was the single, They Don't Care About Us, which some critics pointed out that certain lyrics could be directed towards Evan Chandler, who was Jewish, or Jordy Chandler's lawyer, who was also Jewish, or more broadly, Jews. Correspondent Mark Steinis reported on the story for Entertainment Tonight. Michael Jackson arrived at the location of his music video under an umbrella to protect him from the sun and with two children by his side. He was in Brazil to shoot the music video for his song "They Don't Care About Us." Last year he angered Jewish groups when he sang these words:
8: Kill me, Do me, sue me, everybody
7: do me Kick me, kite me. Don't you away
1: me We showed footage of the video shoots
3: of Rabbi Marvin Heyer, an activist for Jewish causes, who was outraged because last June Jackson sent him a letter of apology for singing those lyrics. "I'm shot. Uh,
8: Jew me, Sue me, Kick me, Kite me." Those are the words that he told us that he would never use again.
1: Long story short, the bloated history, which had a list of credits about as long as the Canadian special effects team for a Marvel movie, was a disappointment. According to the Washington Post, a curious pattern began to emerge with Jackson's record sales since Thriller. With each release, dangerous, bad, and now history, sales within the United States declined, but international sales continued to rise. History did do very well in the global market for Sony, but their domestic marketing campaign was seen as a failure. Neil Strauss wrote in the New York Times Business section that the album entered the pop charts at number one, held on to the top position for two weeks, and then slid rapidly into obscurity. He goes on saying, Sony's campaign for the album became a national joke, derided as an indulgent waste of money, hype, and time on an artist who could no longer create a blockbuster-like thriller. Jackson continued to focus on a global audience, and it was soon announced that he would receive a special Artist of a Generation trophy at the Brit Awards on February 19,
8: 1996. In years gone by, the Brit Awards have been criticized for pandering to yesterday's pop legends. This year was to be different. Homage paid to a younger generation. Build as the evening's highlight, though, Michael Jackson's performance of Earth Song, and that's allegedly when the younger generation really clashed with the old.
1: Earth Song begins with Jackson silhouetted over a projection of, you guessed it, planet Earth. The sun slowly rises behind, giving him the look of a Christ-like figure. Clips of environmental destruction and African safari animals play across the screen as he descends a walkway to a crowd of extras serving as the chorus. Many of them are children dressed in rags, reaching out, attempting to touch the hem of Jackson's garment. It was a bit much, you could say, and midway through the song, Jarvis Cocker, the lead singer of the band Pulp, climbed onto the stage and began to parade around the set, shaking his ass at the audience and jumping onto scaffolding, Security guards and some of the adult performers attempted to grab Cocker as he leapt about. Later, many reports claim that some of the child extras were injured. Police even questioned Cocker about that, but he denied having physical contact with anyone, according to a report in the Los Angeles Times. Following the melee, Cocker gave a press conference.
4: As I've always said throughout this thing, I am got personal vendetta against Michael Jackson. I think... It, you know, it, it can dance. I mean, anybody who invents moonwalk is all right by me. Uh, but uh, I, it was just that one particular performance that I thought was in bad taste, and that's why I did what I did. Um, for my feelings towards him now. I just think he ought to... Uh, it would be good for him to uh, get a bit of reality into his life, really. On January 18th,
1: 1996, Lisa Marie Presley filed for divorce from Jackson, citing irreconcilable differences. In her 2010 Oprah interview, Presley discussed the true reasons behind their marriage ending.
4: Why did the marriage end? Um, There was a very profound point in the marriage when he had to make a decision. Was it the drugs and the the sort of vampires or me? And he pushed me away. Vampires? Meaning uh, people that are sort of... Spiders, vampires, sycophants, um, like, sucking his blood. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Lisa Marie Presley then compared Jackson to her own father, Elvis, who also died of similar means and in a similar universe they built for themselves.
4: The one thing that correlates with with Michael and with my father on this subject is that they had the luxury of creating whatever reality around them they wanted to create. They could have the kinds of people who were going to go with their program or not go with their program. And if they weren't, then they could be disposed of. Mm-hmm. This the reality of being a god
5: in your own world. Right. Yeah.
1: Following the divorce from Presley in 1996, Jackson was becoming a punchline and for very bleak humor. Here was comedian Norm MacDonald's take on Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update. The
3: nation is still reeling from Thursday's bombshell announcement that Lisa Marie Presley has filed for divorce from Michael Jackson. According to friends, the two were never a good match. She's more of a uh, stay-at-home type, and he's more of a homosexual pedophile.
1: In November of that year, Jackson married Debbie Rowe, the nurse, to his longtime dermatologist, the late Arnold or Arnie Klein, who was present years before at Jackson's strip search and even had his office raided by the LAPD during the Jordy Chandler scandal, in the hopes of them finding medical records of markings on Jackson's genitalia. The brief, simple ceremony between Roe and Jackson took place while he was in Sydney on the first leg of his history tour. Just three months after the nuptials, Roe gave birth to the couple's first child, Prince Michael Joseph Jackson, Jr., and in April 1998 gave birth to daughter Paris Michael Catherine. There were tabloid rumors that the couple had used artificial insemination as opposed to the old-fashioned do-it-yourself method of conception, but Jackson denied the rumors. By this time, though, in the late 90s, Jackson was still spending beyond his means. Upkeep at Neverland was over $1 million a month, and he went on luxury shopping sprees and rented out entire floors of hotels. His appearance, too, continued to become more extreme from plastic surgery. In a separate court appearance over a lawsuit over backing out of a concert, Jackson wore a surgical mask before taking the witness stand. Upon removing the mask, a photographer captured a photo of Jackson's nose, which appeared like silly putty. It was as if Jackson was physically falling to pieces.
5: So at that point, Sony decides they're going to call in their loan, their their payback for their loans, because they've been paying out and paying out and paying back out based on publishing. So they were sick of it. They were just so sick of it.
1: This is Rudy Provincio, a record promoter who worked with Jackson during this tumultuous period in his life. Provincio also became a witness for the prosecution in the 2005 trial of Jackson.
5: I tried to give my best reports, you know, but I had to tell the truth, too, that we're not going to make schedule. We weren't going to be able to do any radio interviews. We weren't going to be able to do any promoter interviews. Michael didn't want to do it. But there was a lot of people on the payroll. Lots and lots.
1: According to Maureen Orth's reporting in Vanity Fair, Michael Jackson was in dire straits. From Rudy Provincio's perspective, inside the Jackson camp at this time, Jackson fell far from his position as a musical hero. By this point, Provincio says, Jackson was self-pitying, imagining himself hounded by tabloids and a victim of his own celebrity.
5: He's not a brilliant star, he's a drugged up has-been that's hanging on to to everything he can get his hands on and creating nothing but chaos. I don't understand where, where you guys are coming from, this brilliant thing. And then all of a sudden the narrative changed to, he's a victim. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's no victim, he chooses everything. Is he brilliant or is he a victim? Or is he a brilliant victim? Give me a break, what is this crap?
1: In March 2001, Jackson appeared on crutches with a medical face mask to give a speech at Oxford to launch his new foundation, Heal the Kids, which Billboard magazine reported Jackson founded with controversial Rabbi Shmuley Botiak and the spoon-bending, self-proclaimed psychic, Yuri Geller.
7: Heal the Kids is about doing something about making a difference in trying to help adults and parents realize that it is our power to change the world that our children live in.
1: By now, even gestures of philanthropy were not enough to change the subject around Jackson. The entertainer may have expected praise and gratitude. He instead got skepticism and mockery. Here's Jon Stewart's take on The Daily Show.
5: Some wondered why Jackson is heading up an organization called Heal the Kids, given past allegations of inappropriate behavior. But Jackson's friend, Rabbi Shmuley Botiach, of the Lahayam Society, refuses to believe that Jackson is a child molester.
1: In October of 2001, Jackson's album Invincible was released. It debuted at number one on both the national and local charts, according to the LA Times. It also was number nine on the global best-selling albums of 2001 by the International Phonographic Federation. But, as with history, sales failed to meet Sony's expectations. The album debuted to mixed, sometimes harsh reviews. Bob Hilburn in the LA Times wrote that there was some inspired moments, but also some stretches that are sappy, derivative, and labored.
3: I never got more hate mail than I've ever gotten uh, for anything.
1: This is Jim D. Regattas, a rock critic who reviewed 1995's History and 2001's Invincible for the Chicago Sun-Times.
3: You know, the thing that struck me Is Invincible and History are in large part albums about uh, the charges against him and what he's been through. If we look at songs like Tabloid Junkie and Privacy and DS, which is, you know, changing the initials of the prosecutor, Tom Snedden, to to Dom Snedden or whatever, you know, uh, and I would get crap from lovers of his legacy and his music. Saying you know you're you're dragging into this, um, you know these accusations, um, but but I wasn't dragging them in. Jackson is singing about them. Neither of those albums are anywhere close to him at his best, and I also think um, by by reveling in, you know, not only the child sex charges but. Uh, the weird, surreal way in which he was living for the last decade of his life, I think he was just putting people off from relating to him, even as he was begging us to understand his travails.
1: A track from Invincible that drew particular ire from critics was a ballad called The Lost Children.
3: If you had been accused of sex with underage uh, children, um, this is about the most vile thing society can lay on anybody, right? Um, How on earth uh, you pay millions of dollars to make that accusation go away until fighting till your dying breath to say, I'm innocent, I would have never done this, number one. And number two, you then record, you know, all the lost children with the horrifying sounds of of that little boy and the girl, like lost in the woods. And I mean, that is a creepy track, man. You know, in the same way that you can dissect all of R. Kelly's uh, alleged psychosexual neuroses and problems and predatory behavior by listening to Trapped in the Closet, you know, you can listen to that song by Jackson and say, what the hell? And he's not listening to anybody. Nobody is trusted enough to say this is not a track. A, it's not a good song, Michael. B, it's not a track you should release, right?
1: Rudy Provincio recalled to me hearing The Lost Children while at Sony Music offices in L.A.,
3: We were all in the
5: conference room laughing, like, what the fuck are we going to do with this? It was boring, it was lame, and we were like, we were scrambling with the marketing department to figure out, who is this talking to? You know, people donating money to Red Cross? Who is this? Who is this person? Music is the soundtrack to your life. So what is your life about? Donating money to children's organizations? No, no. It's about bumping in the summer. It's about windows down in your car. It's about, you know, that's my song, you know, things like that. They're not. It's not about, you know, children, future, future. You know, everyone just laughed. It was just, oh, God. But the worst part about it is that the record was taking a zillion dollars to make. Zillion. I remember once we did an accounting on it, and I was... Somebody said something like $20 million, and I said, you know what, we should all be fired, if that's a real number. We should all be fired, because that is ridiculous.
1: The Guardian reported that Jackson's Invincible album had cost $30 million to make and another $25 million to promote, but that Jackson had refused by now to promote or tour in the United States, preferring to focus on Europe. Jackson blamed Sony for failing to market the album, and he staged a protest against Sony Music in London. It drew a giant crowd that overpoured on the streets, chanting as Jackson appeared on the upper deck of a double-decker tour bus, holding a sign that he had retrieved from one of the fans that surrounded the bus that read, Sony is phony. While in London, Jackson, accompanied by paranormalist Uri Geller and magician David Blaine, surprised members of parliament, by showing up at the Treasury Secretary's birthday party and singing him a rendition of Happy Birthday. On the same trip in the UK, because, hey, why not, Jackson showed up at the Exeter City Football Club to sign on as an honorary director. If it all seemed a little batshit crazy, it was merely an appetizer for what was to come in New York that July. Here's Rudy Provincio.
5: We get to New York, and he decides he's going to meet with Sharpton and announce to the world that Tommy Mottola is a racist. And we were like, there's footage of it. And we were like, mouth open, still looking.
1: On July 6th, Jackson gave a speech at Al Sharpton's National Action Network in Harlem, speaking out for Black artists. It was here that he called Sony Music chairman Tommy Matola a racist.
7: The record companies really, really do conspire against their artists. They steal, they cheat, they do whatever they can. Especially the black artists. Yeah. Yes, and Sony Tommy Matola. Tommy Mottola the president of the record division. He's a mean, he's a racist, and he's very, 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 Devilish. Yes. So I need your support, not just for me. When you fight for me, you're fighting for all black people. Dead and alive.
1: Al Sharpton soon took the podium. A few minutes later, Grammy award-winning jazz and R&B musician and radio personality James Matume took the podium and began a passionate speech about a conspiracy in the music business.
0: I want everyone to call everybody you know tomorrow, because we're going to be dealing with this on open line. And it's one thing you have to understand about what Brother Michael is saying. This has been going on forever. There's things that you have to know. We're going to deal with it in depth. Remember I always say, you, don't watch The Puppet, always watch The Puppeteer.
1: Many of Jackson's supporters at the time believed Sony deliberately failed to promote the Invincible album in order to drive Jackson into debt. The reason being, they surmised, was that this would force Jackson to give up his half-ownership of the Beatles' back catalogue, which he co-owned with Sony. This conspiracy theory still persists today within pro-Jackson communities online. Following Jackson's speech in Harlem, Al Sharpton told the New York Post that he was taken aback and surprised by Jackson's charge against Tommy Matola, calling it unfounded and unfair. Matola himself did not offer a tit-for-tat with Jackson, but Sony called Jackson's remarks ludicrous, spiteful, and hurtful, and a statement, all of it, widely reported in the media at the time. The New York Times cited recording executives who they said felt that Jackson's real intentions behind his crazy publicity stunts was to get out of his contract so he wouldn't have to repay the company millions of dollars in promotional fees. In effect, Jackson was trying to hitch his contractual problems to a civil rights cause. Around this time, Rudy Provincio was asked to come on board to work for a separate company with Jackson called Neverland Valley Entertainment. The first project, according to Provincio's transcript from the 2005 criminal trial against Jackson, was a single called What More Can I Give? Jackson hoped the long gestating song would surpass the success of his celebrity packed We Are the World charitable effort from 1985. According to Provincio's trial testimony to finance What More Can I Give? jackson secured another loan this time for 10 million dollars provincio said in our interview that while working on the single it was incredibly difficult to build a work schedule around jackson's odd hours
5: so if he had a good night's sleep on profile and did his quaaludes in the daytime um we had to get everything we needed to do done in the daytime during regular hours and then wait for the, uh, the mummy to wake up, and then, um, you know, he had to put his wig on and all that stuff, and then, you know, but if he didn't, he would just come down and there he was.
1: By the time What More Can I Give finally came out, it was a stinker. Although packed with celebrities like We Are the World, it was shot over several years and didn't have the cultural umph of the 1980s. Jackson, in footage of the music video, isn't seen leading the crowds of stars and chorus but rather singing haphazardly in a booth, or acting as a de facto engineer. Meanwhile, Beyonce and other celebrities belt away at their pre-assigned lyrics. At best, it all seemed very Norma Desmond.
5: What I'm here to let people know is there was a serious drug addiction. We have a person with extremely serious drug addiction that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wanted to talk about.
1: On September 6th, 2001, Jackson appeared with NSYNC at the MTV Video Music Awards, showing up at the end of their performance.
5: appearing on there is this song was called Dirty Pop and he's a performance you can watch it on, online it's not very good but, <laughs> but but and Michael almost falls at the end if you notice cuz he was amped out he was just amped out um and I kept on telling people what is he on he's about to go on stage what did you guys give him what
3: is he on
1: rock critic jim d Regattas, again
3: i, I think in the history of pop culture, and we almost have to let another 50 years go by, people are going to look at this enormous talent who is one of the most significant talents of his age, um, melting down in full view of the universe under the harshest spotlight imaginable, literally after the, you know, he's on fire, Pepsi thing, literally melting down, but also metaphorically, and nobody stopped to help the guy. You know, he had nobody, not family, not friends, not collaborators, certainly not the industry, you know, MTV and the media and and Sony. Um, You know, I mean, he essentially committed slow motion suicide in full view of the world. It it is tragic and it is Christlike. So who can blame him for bringing up that imagery, except it also started to be no fun. Post thriller, the music's just not fun.
1: In this turmoil, Jackson was comforted by another tragic international figure, Princess Diana.
7: Lady Diana, um, in real truth, was one of the sweetest people I've ever known because um, we could relate to each other. We share something in common with the press. I don't think they hounded anyone more than her and myself.
1: This is a clip from Michael Jackson's private home movies, a special that aired on Fox as part of an effort to repair Jackson's image following another documentary, which don't worry, we'll get to.
7: And we had a relationship, a very good relationship where we would call each other uh, late at, at night for me uh, and we would you know just talk about just like crying each other's shoulders how hard and difficult and how mean the tabloids can be and how they lie and
1: twist stories around. Um. There was also another set of hires in this turbid period of Jackson's life, the Germans, as they were later referred to by multiple witnesses at the 2005 criminal trial. According to Rudy Provincio, the Germans made connections for Jackson to appear at an awards show in Berlin.
5: Ronald and Dieter seemed like good, nice people, but I clearly didn't understand what they were doing. They were making, they had made, um merchandising for Michael in Germany and also got him an award on an awards show that was a complete train wreck.
1: On November 19, 2002, while a crowd cheered below at the Hotel Adlon in Berlin, Germany, Jackson appeared with his infant son, Prince Michael II, writhing, his head covered in a towel, as Jackson briefly dangled the baby over the edge of a fourth-story balcony. Headlines like, you lunatic in the sun and mad bad dad flickered across the globe. Ironically, Jackson was in town to accept a lifetime achievement award. He was at his lowest, bleeding money and with little leadership in his camp. He was a hobbling, if not calamitous running gag. Jackson's appearance was ghastly and ever changing. His PR stunts had gone from strategic to desperate. He hadn't recorded a significant hit since the 1980s, and the King of Pop was now openly lampooned as a child molester, proof that settling with the Chandler family in 1993 had not made that problem go away. Far from it. Not that the music world was standing still. Napster had come and pretty much gone, but its legacy of allowing people to share and download songs for free devalued music as a cultural currency. And another enemy was on the horizon, Total Request Live.
2: let's watch some of the video and chat about it. Do you like Destiny's Child? I love
8: Destiny's chat, I love this song. I think they look beautiful in the video. So what is it about them?
2: them? They just have, keep going like hit after hit. I mean, like, is it just? Beyonce says it, it won't stop.
1: With right. TRL on MTV, fans were engaging with their favorite artists in casual and exciting new ways. There wasn't an interest in mythologizing musicians anymore. TRL represented an oncoming democracy Michael Jackson, and his chosen military garb, seem to represent
3: oligarchy. Rock critic cliché 101, you know, Nirvana happens and kicks Michael Jackson and hair metal off the charts, right?
1: Rock critic Jim D. Regatis, again.
3: Jackson had been an innovator as an artist, I think, for his entire career, uh, certainly through Thriller, and then he loses the pulse of popular music. I don't think this is unusual. You know, I mean, we saw it happen to Prince as well. And, um, you know, I, I think when an artist is in her prime, she's coming up uh, surrounded by collaborators who push her uh, to continue to to, to, to to stretch the envelope and to listen and to think. I mean, Madonna. OK, Um and I think that at some point post-thriller and that phenomenal accomplishment commercially and artistically, um, he just stopped being interested in other artists. His attempts to co- grapple with um, uh, hip-hop, for example, are ham-fisted and, and awkward. Jam, jam, here comes the man, hot damn,
0: the big boy stands with an with
3: my man, Michael uh, you know, having Slash on 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 his, you know, I mean, Slash circa Invisible and and uh, history. I mean, Slash is done. You know what I mean? He's not reaching out to Kurt Cobain. You know, he doesn't understand Kurt Cobain. You don't understand. You know, I mean, in the same way that say, um, you know, yes and Genesis and Pink Floyd did not understand the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Ramones. Uh, it was another language.
1: It was in this environment that Michael Jackson agreed to allow British journalist Martin Bashir to film him for eight months, from May 2002 to January 2003, as he traversed the globe. Bashir, a British television personality, had come to Jackson's attention from his 1995 interview with Jackson's favorite icon, Princess Diana. If Jackson hoped that this intimate look would rekindle the public's affection for him, he was yet again to be disappointed. The finished product, which aired on February 6, 2003, was a disturbing, fly-on-the-wall documentary full of alarming and macabre glimpses into Jackson's private life. 27 million viewers tuned in to Living with Michael Jackson, one of the memorable scenes was watching Martin Bashir following an arguably drunk or stone Jackson around as he ravenously purchased oversized vases and gaudy furnishings during a Las Vegas shopping spree.
7: This chess set, isn't it beautiful? This set?
8: Your chess set in, in your library? Isn't no, this, is one's,
7: bigger. this, this is one's bigger. This is bigger. Wow, Oh, it's sold, look. I bought this one, right?
8: Uh huh. Is this yours?
7: Yeah, that's the sold sign, mean it's for me. Okay, how much is that one? Did we ever get this ah. one, these ones? It's
8: only 89,000. No. Can
7: you put that on the list?
8: Of course.
7: Get your pin just so you can mark and not forget. I'm getting
3: the uh, list now.
1: Okay, did we get those? I don't believe you. I like those. Okay. Why don't we order those? In another scene, which was filmed shortly after the Berlin baby dangling incident the previous November, an amped-up Jackson explained himself while frantically attempting to give a bottle to Prince Michael II, aka Blanket, whose face was covered with a scarf. It's
8: okay, just
7: get this yeah. out. Oh, please don't try blanket. Oh, blanket. blanket. Blanket, Okay, okay, here we go. Abu! 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 Yes, Abu! Blanket, Blanket! Blanket. 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 I love you. Blanket. Yes. 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 I love you. I love my children very much.
1: Martin Bashir then asks Jackson about the reaction in the press to him lifting his son over the balcony. Have you been hearing about what people
8: have been saying?
7: That's totally ignorant. I would never do that to my children or any, any child. Try to kill them? Come on. Stupid. And why would I put a scarf over the baby's face if I was trying to throw him off the balcony? We were waiting to thousands of fans down below, and they were chanting they wanted to see my child. So I was kind enough to let them see. I was doing something
1: out of innocence. Later in the program, Martin Bashir introduced a pair of young teenage brothers and their older sister who had been visiting Neverland, and here, were seen joking around in the kitchen with Jackson and a cook. The younger boy, it was stated by Bashir, had recently overcome cancer.
7: Isn't that great? Uh-huh. Not sick at all. No more cancer.
1: The boy's older sister speaks here.
7: All gone.
4: He's taller than me now. <laughs>
7: when they told him he was gonna die, isn't that great?
4: They told us to. They told my Very parents nice. to plan for his funeral because there was no chance.
7: They they told your parents they to plan, for his, plan for
4: his funeral. They the told family. he wasn't going to grow, he wasn't going to be able to have kids. I had a spurt. He had growth spurts during chemotherapy. I
7: went from 4'10 to 5'4. See? Medicine don't know it all, do they?
1: Later, in the living room at the main house of the ranch, the boy, a slightly muscular teenager with a military-style haircut, dressed in an athletic sweatshirt, is seated next to a long-haired and makeup in Jackson on an antique sofa. Bashir speaks to the boy first.
8: What is it about Michael that makes him connect so well with children? What is it? Because
7: he's really a child at heart. Mm-hmm. He yes he just like a child. He he, he knows how, how a child is. He knows how, what a child thinks. See, because I think that um, you don't necessarily have to be a child just because society says... Uh, 18 and up, you're adult. It doesn't really matter.
8: You're, you're an adult when you want to be one. When you stay here, do you stay in the house? Do you? Does Michael let you enjoy the whole premises?
7: There was one night I stood in there, yeah, and I asked him if I could stay in the bedroom. And he let me stay in the bedroom. And I was like, Michael, you can stay, sleep on the bed. And he was like, no, 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 you sleep on the bed, sleep on the bed. We were like, no, 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 you sleep, on, you sleep on the bed. And then he finally said, OK. If you love me you sleep on a bed, I was like, oh, man. And so I finally slept on a bed. But it was fun that night.
1: Bashir then addresses Jackson directly.
8: What? But Michael, you know, you're a 44-year-old man now. Not what eight. What do you get out of this? Uh, I love, um, I feel, see...
7: I think what they get from me, I get from them. I told, I've told, i said it many times, my greatest inspiration comes from kids. Every song I write, every dance I do, all the poetry I write, is all inspired from that level of innocence, that
1: consciousness of purity. And children have that. I see God in the face
8: of children. But Bashir doesn't let the matter go. When people hear that children from other families have come and they've stayed in your house, they've stayed in your bedroom? Well, very few. But, you know, some have. And they say, is that really appropriate for a man, a grown man, to be doing that? How do you respond to that? It was a disturbing
1: scene, one that would soon become the money shot for the press, the public, and eventually, District Attorney Tom Sneddon in Santa Barbara County had worked on the Geordie Chandler case against Jackson a decade before. As Jackson spoke, the boy rested his head affectionately on Jackson's shoulder. The camera lingered on their intertwined hands.
7: I feel sorry for them because that's judging someone who wants to really help people. Why well, can't you share your bed? The, the most loving thing to do is to share your bed with someone.
2: Oh, God, I remember watching this on TV. I was, I was by myself, actually, in Cincinnati. I was singing at the opera, and I was in this like apartment by myself, and it was just... Uh-huh. I remember... Just feeling so uncomfortable. It was so gross.
1: Yeah, I remember watching it. I was in college with my roommate Ross, who's now our editor, right? And we were watching it, and I think it was around the time of the Iraq War, and our jaws were just on the floor. It was like, what is happening in the world?
2: (laughs) Yeah, mine too. It was just so awful. I remember right after that interview aired, too. The uh, the Bashir documentary, like. I mean, all hell broke loose for Michael Jackson.
1: All hell broke loose. As with the Oprah interview nearly a decade before, Jackson's attempt at giving the public access to his personal life was swamped by claims of child molestation. The clips of the unnamed boy embraced with Michael on the sofa talking about sleeping in his bed were played over and over by news outlets around the world and sparked renewed controversy over Jackson's intimate relationships with children. Not only would the press proclaim it as a final nail in the coffin of Jackson's divorce from reality, but the public would see it as an admission, if not proclamation, of his latent desires for children. For Jackson, it was the beginning of yet another trip into the criminal justice system. Only a few years before the documentary aired, the boy at the center of the firestorm who would be later known to the public as Gavin Arviso was suffering from a rare form of cancer, causing doctors to remove both his spleen and one of his kidneys. According to multiple accounts, while facing devastating odds of survival, the boy was asked what he wanted more than anything in the world. He answered, to go to Neverland and meet Michael Jackson. We hope you guys have enjoyed the first seven episodes of Telephone Stories. Before we jump into the second half of Michael Jackson's 2005 criminal trial, we will be taking a short break. And during that time, we'd love to hear from you, our listeners. Please email us at feedback at storiespod.com and share your thoughts, questions, and heaping praise. Even better, if you have information that you think can contribute to our reporting, we'd love to hear from you. Again, That's feedback at telephonestoriespod.com. And we'll see you again as we dive into the next chapter of our saga. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates. Who knocked it out of the park with her work on this episode? Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer. Our associate producer is Tess Ryan, and production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders.
2: The Thriller Dance!